Hi, this is Bruce Clark, host of Twip Weddings. You're listening to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for This Week in Photo is provided by the CashFly Content Delivery Network. Send your web content blazingly fast with CashFly. And now, pay as you go. Start with two terabytes free by going to C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com and use the promo code TWIP. TWIP is also brought to you by Lynda.com. Learn what you want, when you want, with access to thousands of high-quality, easy-to-follow video tutorials, including many about photography. Do something good for yourself in 2015 and sign up for a free 10-day trial by visiting Lynda.com slash TWIP. And by Audible. Audible.com is a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audiblepodcast.com slash twip. Before we dive into this week's show, here's a quick look at what's happening this week on the TWIP Network. First up, over on the Candid Frame, photographer Bill Wadman sits down with the Candid Frame host, Varian X. Perillo, to discuss what he's learned from nine years of producing the Candid Frame. Also on TWIP Talks, I sit down with veteran podcaster Mr. Chuck Joyner of MacVoices.com. We sat back, sat down a while back to discuss the iPhone 6 from an amateur photographer's perspective. And over on TWIP Family... Should you start a photography business with Kristen Kelp? And on The Fix, answers to photographers' common questions about Lightroom, Photoshop, and post-processing with new guest co-host Mr. Sean Duggan and new Photoshop SOS formats. And on TWIP Weddings, part one of a three-part series exploring how to maximize your online presence. In part one, we share tips and strategies for building an effective website to attract potential clients. And lastly, on Street Focus, German street photographer Marius Vief shares his top 10 photography tips. All that and more is happening this week on the TWIP Network. You can subscribe for free to any or all of our shows over at thisweekinphoto.com slash subscribe. This is TWIP, episode 426, APS-C or APS-C ya. This week, we discuss a rumor from MirrorlessRumors.com, reported by the Korea Times and then picked up by the Phoblographer. The gist is that recent activity suggests, and that's in quotes, Sony is focusing on its full-frame mirrorless cameras, the famed A7 line, in an effort to take on Canon and Nikon. Hmm. And in other news, recent activity suggests that water is wet. Also, Canon recently announced a new full-frame camera that can see in the dark with the ability to capture full-frame 1080p full-color video at a maximum ISO of, wait for it, 4 million. Joining me to discuss the end of APS-C and Canon's newest camera are Mr. Sean Bagshaw and my good friend Mr. Joseph Linashki. It's Monday, August 17th, 2015. And this is TWIP. All right, guys, welcome to TWIP, episode 426. This is going to be a really interesting show. A couple of cool things to talk about today, most of it hardware-related. So first of all, Joseph, I want to say thank you for hosting last week's episode. I appreciate it. You did a fantastic job. I hope I did you proud. You did me proud, man. You did me proud. Thank you. You know I'm grooming you to take my place. But Oh, did I say that out loud? <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> uh, but new to the show is another voice. Sean, Mr. Sean Bagshaw is here. Sean, thank you for coming on, first of all. I've been uh, you know, looking forward to having you on the show and kind of diving into your background and landscape and all the stuff that you do. But tell us, give us your elevator pitch about the kind of photographer you are and the kind of things that you do. Thanks, Frederick. Well, I've been watching TWIP for years, so it's, uh, it's a real pleasure for me to be here. So I'm a landscape nature and travel photographer really that's the, the focus of what i do uh photographically and most of my business as a photographer is is around photo education and photo adventure so we do a lot of teaching a lot of photoshop instruction and uh, a lot of taking people out to places where hopefully they can uh see a beautiful landscape and point their camera at it that's cool. So, so why why landscape? Because when when people ask me the kind of photography that I do, I like taking pictures of people and models, and you know, and the the rationale that I generally give people is, 
I like taking pictures of people because people change all the time, you know, and especially women, you know, women, they like to see themselves at a, at a if, if you make them look good at a particular point in time and you've frozen that time, they'll never get that back again, you know, but landscape, what drives you to shoot landscape? Yeah, my background before photography uh, was doing a lot of outdoor kind of adventure sports and adventure travel. So I, I did a lot of backpacking as a kid with my family, then skiing, mountain biking, kayaking, and then eventually, you know, rock climbing and mountaineering. Mm -hmm. uh, did a lot of expeditioning all over the place. So being outdoors, being in the landscape and experiencing, you know, the weather and the light and all of that was just a part of my, uh, my life my entire life. And, uh, the idea that I could capture some of those moments and some of those places in a photograph, uh, really became interesting to me, uh, in the kind of in the late, late mid to late nineties is when I really started realizing the potential of, uh, of the camera to, to communicate my experiences outside. Love it. Love it. Perfect. And Joseph, what about you, man? You're, you're more of the, on the commercial side and you're, you're the, uh, I don't know, a generalist in photography. You do many things sure. and you do them all really well. Plus, you have a deep That's knowledge true. of hardware and software and presentation. <laughs> you worked at Apple on stage at Macworld, all this stuff. What, what type of photography, if you had to pick one, your, your, desert, your desert island genre of photography, what would it be? Well, if I was in a desert island and didn't have to worry about getting paid for it, it'd be travel. <laughs> travel, okay. Right, because I, mean, I absolutely love that. But That's what is travel? So That's street photography, though, right? Well, it could be street, it could be scenery, it could be food. It's everything that you experience when you go to a new place. Okay. And it's it's about communicating that experience. You know my tagline, photographic storyteller, and that is that is perfect for travel, right? You go to a new place and you tell the story of what you found, your experience. It's not about what what somebody else wants you to see. It's about what I want you to see, my experience communicating back through the camera. Yeah. So, yeah, if, if I didn't have to worry about people paying me for it, that would be the the one thing. Love it, love it. And before we dive into the news, just for both of you guys, for the folks that may not know who you are, people on This Week in Photo always want to find out what you're shooting with so they can, can see if they need to hate you or love you. Joseph, what, <laughs> what, what are you shooting with? What's your What's your hardware of choice? Well, as you know, I'm a Lumix luminary now, so I'm uh, I'm all in on the Lumix gear, and the GH4 is the top camera, but that new G7 is uh, is great. That's what I took on my last trip, and I'm taking on a trip with me tomorrow. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, the G7 is great. It's like GH4 power in a smaller body. Not I love that the it. GH4 is even remotely big, but it's, it's even smaller. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah, and then that G, was it the GX8 that's uh, that's coming out next? Right, the GX8 is the next one. You got it. Yeah. And that's yeah. Uh, got a whole new level of fun to it. Yeah, and you have the. I think you and Derek Story have the honor of being the ones that convinced me to move to mirrorless. So sweet. There you go. So, what about you? What are you, what are you shooting for landscapes? I imagine it's uh, obviously larger gear, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been shooting Canon, uh, Canon digital bodies since the beginning, and uh, right now I'm shooting with a 5D Mark III, and waiting for Canon to do something. Uh, <laughs> you know, 5D Mark IV, 5DX. I'm hearing some different different uh things thrown out there there's of course the new uh 50 megapixel cannons that are out but i haven't jumped in on that one yet yeah uh but uh, you know i'm looking at other stuff too because uh some of the capabilities coming out there with uh you know obviously sony and nikon uh pretty tempting and i haven't completely retooled yet but it's not off the table and yeah. I do have a little Sony mirrorless that I that I take with me uh, when I don't want to bring the big kit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for for folks that, you know, we get Joseph, I'm sure you get this question all the time, too. Should I go mirrorless? Why should why should I go mirrorless? And what are the what are the, the benefits of going mirrorless over sticking with a traditional DSLR, quote, mm -hmm. traditional DSLR? Um, and Sean, you're you're the perfect case in point for that. If you're shooting things that are going to be large and landscape and you need that resolution not to say that mirrorless cameras don't have the resolution but if you need that obscene 50 megapixel level of resolution <laughs> right. you need the gear that can handle that so but for like generalists like me and joseph somewhat mirrorless cameras pretty much fit the bill for 90 percent of everything else i think right yeah absolutely yeah absolutely yeah and in fact even i, I have a little sony nex7 which I think now is the A6000. And, uh, but it's, it's actually, even though it's a slightly smaller sensor than my 5D3, it's actually more total resolution. And I've blown up some huge prints from that camera, and they're amazing. They look yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that's a whole other show. Let's, let's dive into story number <laughs> one, which is the end of APSC question mark. I hate those. That's like, 
I was watching this documentary the other day and it just got on my nerves because every sentence they said ended in question mark, you know, because you can, you can put you can say anything as long as you ended in question mark. So you could say, is Joseph Lenashki from Mars? <laughs> you exactly. know? Right. Who knows? We'll find out after the break. You know, but this one is, uh, you know, it's about the end of APS-C and another sort of obvious thing is Sony doubling down on full frame, obviously. So so uh, this comes to us from an article that was listed in the, that was published in the Korea Times that mirrorless rumors found. So it's a rumor. It's a reporting about a rumor from a site that's about rumors. <laughs> well, then it must be true. It must be true. Wow. And we're on the Internet and we're reporting on it on a podcast. So who knows? So anyway, uh, they say basically what the gist of the article is, because Sony has released the A7 and the A7 II, then the A7R, and then the A7R II and A7S, all full, mostly full-frame cameras, that they're doubling down on that, which means the APS-C size sensor is not long for this world, according to this article. I, w I wanted to talk about this with you guys, Sean, you especially, because you are on the side of I need full frame, like we just said, you need that resolution for the step that you do. Does does APS-C fit in there? Because like, we see on the micro four thirds side, there's that four thirds sensor, which is smaller Then we have a one inch sensor and things like this guy that just came out, the DxO. And then we've got full frame. You know, do you care about APS-C? Was that just a stopgap? What do you think? Uh, definitely. I think for uh, landscape photographers, having the, the larger sensor, having, you know, more space for those pixels to spread out, um, more resolution without crowding the pixels as much. And then also just the ability to get the full uh, wide angle from your, you know, your top end lenses. Those are all really important things to me as a, as a landscape photographer. And, you know, certainly there's some great APS-C cameras out there. And I have uh, colleagues and friends and people I know who shoot wildlife or sports or action and they love that smaller sensor size yeah. um, because they're going the other way they get more telephoto out of their telephotos right so yeah but for for landscapes everything i'm shooting uh the the full full frame sensor makes sense yeah so no APS-C doesn't even fit into your into your periphery you need the APS-C size sensor is just out of your the, the realm of things that you could use in terms of tools right uh, definitely. Although, like I said, that little the little Sony that I have is an APS-C, and right, right. I take that when I want to be small and light, and uh, I'm I'm really impressed with it. Yeah. Um, but it's a whole different set of lenses, and it's it's not quite up to the standard of my you know the the normal gear that I shoot with in terms of the lenses and everything. But I'm I'm really impressed with it. Yeah. Yeah. Joseph, what about you? So you're like you said, you're a Lumix luminary. Um, and you're shooting micro four thirds because all mm -hmm. Lumix cameras are micro four thirds, which is smaller than an APS-C size sensor. That's right. um, and you used to shoot full frame Nikon, right? So full frame Canon. Full, I'm sorry, full frame Canon. Um, so you're two steps quote down from sure. that full frame, but you're still doing commercial work and you're Absolutely. still traveling the world and you're doing all this other crazy stuff. Tell us about your thoughts on APS-C. So it's funny, my, my very first digital camera, di DSLR, not digital camera, but first DSLR was the, the Canon 20D, which was a, the smaller sensor, I, I believe, an APS-C size sensor. So definitely smaller than full frame. Mm -hmm. And I remember very distinctly seeing my first full frame digital photos and seeing an intangible difference, something I couldn't quite put my finger on. There's something about it that looked more like what I was used to seeing when I was shooting film. Mm -hmm. And... It, it, somewhat, finally, somewhere along the way, someone said, oh, that was shot with a full-frame camera, and it was like a light switch. Ah, I get it. The full-frame, you have to have that sensor size to get that look. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking over a decade ago, yeah. right? And that, was, and that was absolutely true at the time. And at that point, I basically immediately became a full-frame sensor snob. Anything less than full-frame wasn't even worth consideration. And then a few years ago, Fuji came out with that little X100. And that changed everything again because that was a smaller sensor, APS-C sensor, but put out the most amazing image quality. And it was this whole mirrorless, it was the beginning of this mirrorless trend, at least as far as when, when I got involved with it. And it was such an incredible thing. And so suddenly my kind of eyes were reopened to this possibility of smaller sensors still being just as good. Mm -hmm. And then along the way, I got introduced to Micro Four Thirds and I've actually had Lumix cameras for many years, um, not even realizing at the time they're micro four thirds, you know, not really knowing what that technology was, just smaller mirrorless camera, yay, this is cool. And the image quality has gotten so good that now 
I don't see the difference. They're just, there isn't that intangible difference. That intangible is gone. Now it's about the quality of the sensor, the quality of the pixels, like Sean was saying, not crowding too many. And obviously you're crowding more on the Micro Four Thirds sensor because it is physically smaller, mm -hmm. but we're also not shooting as high resolution, right? It's 16 megapixel uh, instead of the 23 or trying to, what, 50 now on this new Canon. <laughs> Um, right. You know, it's it's you've got to be pushing the laws of physics at some point there. Well, so, well, speaking of the laws of physics, a lot of people would argue the the proponents of full frame versus or the you know the people that are against smaller sensors like Micro Four Thirds would argue that hey, you're not going to get that bokeh that you can get with a full frame on a smaller frame camera. Now, granted, with in Sean's case, bokeh doesn't really make. You know, he doesn't really care about that. It's landscape. <laughs> it's all in focus. But on the portraiture side of things, some of the things you do are portraiture. Absolutely. Or portraits. Do you care? I mean, are, is that impacting you? You having to do that in post or how do you handle that? No, not at all. No, it's you just you have the better lenses, right? My best lens, I think you have the same one, is that the 42 and a half millimeter Noctocron F1.2. Yeah. This is an 85 mil <laughs> F1.2 equivalent. Yeah. Uh, believe me, that's your shallow depth of field there. I know. Very yeah. shallow. Yeah. And don't so get me started on that lens. I love it. It's back there. It's, right it's incredible. <laughs> right. And so that's there's your shallow depth of field. And it's not like you have to shoot at F12. You shoot at F2 or F28 and still have a nice shallow depth of field, depending on what you're shooting. Right. And yeah. Yeah. but I have portraits shot with that lens wide open where it is that classic, oop, the eyeballs in focus and the eyelashes not yeah. type of shot. So right. the the depth of field is yeah, maybe it's not as narrow, but it is narrow enough with the right lenses. Mm -hmm. Granted, if you're shooting with a, a kit lens that's, you know, an F4 to 5.6 zoom type of thing, yeah, sure, you're not going to have that shallow depth of field, but you know, you don't get that on the Canon or Nikon full frames either. Right, right. At that it's point, just a point, lens, it's a it's point of arguing there. to say, you know, it's better over here, therefore go over there. Sure. But like you're saying, like we're saying, this is the perfect the perfect group to be discussing this because it depends on what you're shooting. Not yeah, only absolutely. does it depend on what you're shooting, it depends on what your final output is. So if you're if you're going to billboard size or you're doing gallery shows in New York City or San Francisco, then you probably want more pixels to pack in there and to work with. If you're doing high-end retouching and you need to get in to remove that cell from the eyelash, then you need the resolution to be able to do that. If you're going to Facebook, if you're doing online galleries, if you're doing 11 by, you know, or 20 by 24 prints, then micro four thirds or smaller sensors are okay for that. Is that is that fair? Yeah, it's fair. The even I would say the retouching is probably the one big thing where the really high resolution matters. Yeah. You know, I've printed 30 by 40 prints off of micro four thirds 16 yeah. megapixel files, no problem. Absolutely no problem. So if, if 30 by 40 isn't big enough. Straight out of the camera, that's with no fractal, you know, uh, scaling or anything? Right. Wow. Right. You know, the printers, whatever they, they might do some magic sauce that they do on their end. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't have a printer here at home or my studio doing that, but send them off to a, a lab and you come back and it's a beautiful print. So, yeah, yeah. you know, I got no problem with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah if you're going to retouch that, that eyelash out, then yeah, you really do need those pixels. That's where you definitely need the pixels. Right. But for my money, if you're shooting that type of stuff, I'm going to go medium format. Yeah. I'm not going to try and cram that many pixels into a smaller sensor. I'd rather just shoot medium format. Yeah. Yeah. Sean, so one of the, the names that's been coming up over and over again in the photography world, obviously, is Fuji. And Joseph mentioned that a minute ago. And those guys, for the most part, are APS-C, right? So mm -hmm. APS-C with their whatever magic they're putting in those cameras to make that Fuji look, still don't know. It's kind of like the Leica look, you know, that Fuji look. Um, is that where the APS-Cs are kind of find their sweet spot there? Like, in other words, Fuji or... Uh, you know, you've got Canon and Nikon and Sony on the mirrorless side with full frame. And then you've got Fuji in the middle with APS-C. And then down at the, the uh, Micro Four Thirds level, you've got Olympus and uh, Panasonic with the Lumix side of things. Is that, is that kind of the breakdown? And then you kind of pick where you're going depending on what you're shooting. Yeah, I, I think that sounds right. Um, certainly, I think I know I haven't shot with any of the Fujis myself, but I know a lot of uh, people that are doing, you know, street photography, people photography, different types of photography. They're oftentimes off tripod, they're hand holding, they're being spontaneous with their shooting. I think that APS-C format works great for that. And even I think even some of the smaller, like you said, micro four thirds and stuff. Um, the landscape photographers I see, you know, we're out there, we're, we're mounted up on a tripod 95% of the time. We're shooting mm -hmm. in low light conditions. Sometimes we're shooting at night. Um, and then we do want to make those big, highly detailed prints with depth of field, you know, going from right up front to a hundred miles away. Yeah. And so that's where I see those landscape photographers going with, you know, the Nikon D8 
10, 36 megapixels, you know, the A7, A7 II, or A7R. Yeah. Uh, any, like I said, Canon now, it's, I'm still not sure where Canon's fitting into all that. But <laughs> if you can lock down on a tripod, you don't have to worry about all those extra pixels and extra resolution getting blurry from trying to handhold it. Um, the advantage is still for, for landscape, I think, with the big sensors is the way to go. All right. Well, here's, here's, a, you know, here's a wrench in this, in this <laughs> discussion. I love um, wrenches. Yeah, I mean, you, you guys are both in California, right? So, and I'm sure the, the Apple's, Apple's you know iPhone billboard campaign is national, probably global, right? So the, the right. Apple's running these billboard campaigns where it says shot on an iPhone 6 or 6 Plus or whatever. Right. And these gorgeous landscapes and people running on beaches and all the stuff that's blown up to billboard size. Sean, I went through it to you first. Why should people even care about all this fancy, expensive camera gear when they could just whip out the iPhone in their back pocket and do an ad campaign that's good enough for the most successful tech company on the planet? Yeah, good question. Good question. Um, Crickets. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, th I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, what is, like you said earlier, what is your final output and what is your intention? What's your intent as a photographer or as an artist? Yeah. Uh, obviously, when it comes to a billboard that people are going to see only from, you know, hundreds of feet away yeah. or in a magazine with that sort of printing situation. Um, yeah, you know, I think you have some more wiggle room. For me, even if no one else notices it, I really get down and I, I, I analyze my prints down to every little grain of sand in the sand dune. And I'm looking for certain types of, um, you know, clarity and sharpness and detail and also the ability to work with, you know, dynamic range and really push you know, do a lot of post, uh, post developing to my images and be able to push those pixels around and get a raw file that has a lot to work with. So yeah. for me, all those things are important. I don't know if anybody else can tell, but I can tell. And that's, yeah. that's where I care. <laughs> well, you hit it on the head, right? It's, it's a dynamic range and shooting raw and having all that raw material to work with to create that final piece of art. iPhone's not going to give you that. You get a, you get a JPEG, albeit a nice JPEG, but you get a JPEG to work with, which you can't really dive into and pull the covers back and do all this stuff. Joseph, what about you? What do you, what do you think about that ad campaign? Does it change things? Well, it's it's impressive for sure. And I think the campaign you're talking about, those shots are really wide. So those are panoramics, which yeah. you are getting 50 megapixel images out of oh. the iPhone if you do a, a big wide panoramic. Mm. So they're huge. There's a ton of pixels in there to work with. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's a JPEG for sure. But in the right lighting conditions where you don't have super, super bright highlights, super dark shadows, if you have uh, uh, not a massive amount of dynamic range you're trying to capture, then the camera's amazing. I mean, I've I've gotten some photos off of the iPhone that I'm just I'm blown away. It's like, are you yeah. kidding me? Yeah. This is ridiculously awesome. I know. But what? one of one of the reasons that it's so good, and, and this goes back to the discussion of the transition from full frame to micro four thirds on down to the one inch sensor like in that DXO one, it's not just about the sensor and the glass in front of it. Now it's largely about the software behind it as well. Yeah. The cameras themselves are computers, but then the software that you're processing with it, uh, processing those images with, is a huge part of that as well. Yeah. And even like the the Lumix cameras, there's a lot that happens inside the camera to do uh, distortion correction and sharpening and noise reduction and all this kind of stuff that happens the instant you click the shutter, and that's written into the raw file, and and you just you don't realize it's happening, but it is. Yeah, yeah, that's a really really good point. Yeah, yeah. In the case of the DXO one. They have the uh, this format that's built into it called Super Raw, right. which if you're shooting, it's, it can shoot raw, but it can also shoot Super Raw, which is essentially like a noise reduction algorithm that's kind of like HDR, where it will take three rapid succession images and look at the noise, four, thank you, Joseph, four <laughs> rapid succession images, look at the noise in each one of those images and remove the deltas. So you end up with a relatively noise-free image, which is all software, right, Joseph? Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's good times. So speaking of iPhone and photography, I just want to let the listeners know that I'm joined by a special guest here in my office here in uh, California. My nephew's off in the corner here. He's uh, diving into Periscope. He is broadcasting this episode of TWIP to his Periscope audience, which is on my desk over there. It's iPhones. Come say hi, Keith. Hey, how you doing? There he is. So, yeah, so follow him. His name on Periscope is Keith Maurice. So follow him and uh, give him some love there. All right, guys, let's move on to story number two. And this is about Canon. So Canon has announced a full-frame camera that can essentially 
see in the dark did i my reading that right yeah that can see in the dark this comes to us from no film school so this camera is the me 20 f sh it's a full frame 35 millimeter camera with the ability to reach an iso of am i reading that right is that four million four million <laughs> yeah I, 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 there's six zeros after that four so iso four million like what i don't what does that even mean? Like seriously, what does that even mean? And why would you be in a situation where you needed ISO four million? I don't know, Sean. What, what do you think? When you saw this, what'd you think? Well, the first thing I thought I was really excited about it because I thought this is something that would would be amazing for me in terms of landscape photography. Then I saw that it's actually it's a video camera and it's thirty thousand dollars. <laughs> so I want to know when they're going to put that technology into one of their their SLRs um, so yeah. that I can actually take some because I don't need to shoot at ISO four million, but if I could shoot clean at ISO thirty two hundred, and I'm assuming if you can go to four million thirty two hundred probably looks amazing. Or so walk in the park, yeah, yeah. So. I say Canon, put that in the 5D Mark IV and you just have a customer. Absolutely, yeah. And the, for those that need to shoot video on the dark side of the moon and you got 30 grand laying around, <laughs> this is a camera. But some specs on this camera, Joseph, I want you to weigh, weigh in on this. But it says the new 1080p camera is aimed at a number of different markets, including nighttime surveillance and security, cinema, reality TV, nature, wildlife documentaries, just to name a few. It comes with a positive locking EF mount and features Canon Log and YDR for maximum recorded dynamic range. All terms that people that are seriously into video will understand. Joseph, <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, when you saw this camera, is this a camera that might, you do a lot of video too. So sure. does this camera fit in? Could it replace theoretically your GH4? What do you think? No, I, I, I learned to light a long time ago. And so <laughs> like, buy this camera or spend a hundred bucks on some lights. And you know. <laughs> right, I can, I can just turn off all the lights in my studio and shoot in the dark. Um, yeah, not so interested. Yeah. Uh, no, obviously it has a very specific purpose and yeah. it's funny that this list of aimed markets they're aiming at, I mean, they didn't really leave anything off. They basically aimed it at everybody except for your family photographer. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, surveillance and security, clearly that's a huge one, but $30,000 for a surveillance camera, maybe not so much. Uh, unless you're, I guess you're guarding a you know, couple million dollar product, then maybe it's worth spending that kind of money on the camera. Right. Reality TV, um, I don't know, we can set our opinions of reality TV <laughs> aside. Do we really need to be seeing in the dark? Don't we see enough as it is? <laughs> uh, cinema, uh, you know, I guess for, for theater, cinematic, uh, cinema theatrical release type of movies, I'm sure there's there's a point where that could be useful, shooting some really cool dark nighttime mystery scene you know, the murderer going down the dark alley kind of a thing. And sure, uh, to be able to get the the details out of that, I'm sure that there's uh, some great use cases for that, in which case 30 grand is nothing yeah. to filmmaker right. uh, to that level. So, you know, it has its place. It's certainly not a, an everyday, everybody camera by any stretch of the imagination. But I think the most interesting, interesting thing about it is more what Sean was saying, where put this technology in the other cameras. Yeah. It's like your Formula One race cars, right? It's They have incredible technology. Nobody drives that. Uh, but that technology does eventually over the years trickle down into production cars. Right. And so if you can get 4 million ISO on this camera 30, for $30,000 today, what's to say in five years you won't have it for uh, you know, for $3,000 in the top-of-the-line Canon? Or it'll be in your iPhone. Look there you that. go. <laughs> that's, that's just crazy. I mean, this stuff, you know, it's, I don't know. The physics and how they keep breaking the physics and and setting new standards just i mean it's one of the reasons why i love photography so much because this stuff it keeps getting pushed forward i remember like 10 15 years ago we thought we had state-of-the-art with i was shooting nikon i still have my nikon gear and we thought we had state-of-the-art with the what the the you know d4 or whatever you know right. d3 before that you know we thought this is it they can't what could they possibly give us after this this is the amazing you know end-all be-all camera and now we're talking about millions in ISO. I mean, Sean, have you, did you ever even fathom that technology would be where it is today with regard to image making? No, no. I, you know, I started with uh, 35 millimeter, uh, 35 millimeter color slide film and yeah. I, I was not good at it. But one of the reasons I wasn't good at, cause I felt there were so many limitations. So when I got my very first digital SLR, which is a, like a Canon 10 D, I think six megapixels, uh -huh. um, I just thought that that was incredible. And by the 20D, I thought, well, we've so far surpassed 
the things that I could do with film. And I feel now that all those limitations I felt with film that were really holding me back as a photographer and the stuff I wanted to do um, really had been overcome. So now that we're now you know, orders of magnitude past that is, is really spectacular. Yeah. And the possibilities just keep opening up. Yeah, the idea that, um, you know, if this camera has the kind of ISO ability and the dynamic range that they say it does, and that gets into cameras that I can afford and take with me out on a, you know, into the wilderness, then the, the images that I can create, there's a whole bunch of images that have been impossible for me to right. make so far yeah. that now become possible. Mm. And I, every time that opens doors, technology opens doors that way for me creatively, I love it. I think it's amazing. It's like a whole new market's open up because if you think back, back in the days when, when Apple released the iPhone, right, the, the technology that's in the iPhone opened up other industries like drones, right? So now we have, there's in this device, in the iPhone, there's a GPS, there's a you know, what is it? The uh, What's that thing that lets it know its orientation? Whatever that's Accelerometer. Thing. <laughs> it's an accelerometer, accelerometer or something. Yeah. We have the accelerometer in here, GPS, the digital compass, you know, all this miniaturized technology that's in here, yeah. which is now part of what allows this new genre of industry out there called drones, right? So all those things are essentially in drones now, including the miniaturized cameras and all that. So these new technologies like ISO 4 million and, you know, all these other things that we're seeing pop up now, what I start thinking of, like kids like my nephew and other people that are out there doing all this cool stuff today, what are they going to synthesize these new tools <laughs> into, the, you know, making these new industries and uh, products that we can't even think of right now, right? Because the tools are just now here. Like, it's like getting a hammer. Hey, once I have a hammer, I can build a house. But before you get that hammer, you don't really know what you can do. I don't know, Joseph, you got anything to add to that? No, I think we've uh, we've hit that one pretty well. Yeah, we've beat that one into the ground. <laughs> beat it to death. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break. After the break, we're going to discuss Fuji's new infrared camera, and that's the X-T1 IR. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the online training platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, just visit lynda.com slash twip. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash T-W-I-P. Now, lynda.com is for problem solvers, creative people, or just people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel or learn negotiation tactics or build a website or even boost your Photoshop skills. Just go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind. lynda.com offers a ton of courses on Lightroom, Photoshop, and the Adobe Creative Cloud, and many on just getting inspired or re-inspired about your photography. With a lynda.com membership, you can watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching, and you can stream thousands of video courses on demand and learn at your own schedule. And courses are structured so that you can watch them from start to finish, or you can consume them in bite-sized pieces. You can even download tutorials and watch them on the go from your iOS or Android device. Your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for one flat rate. So whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or just want to learn something new, visit lynda.com slash twip and sign up for your free 10-day trial. That's l-y-n-d-a dot com slash twip. All right, guys. All right, we're back. Now we're going to talk about Fuji. So this story comes to us from DP Review. Fuji has gone infrared. They introduced the X-T1 IR. It's a version of their flagship mirrorless camera that's designed specifically for, you guessed it, infrared photography. Camper captures light from the UV spectrum of the uh, visible light or invisible um, or the visible and infrared portions of the spectrum from approximately 380 to 1000 nanometers. So stuff that you can't see. Um, so they're saying that Fujifilm is going to, they're targeting this at crime scene investigations, healthcare applications, and photographers who just like to shoot IR, you know, because it's a really interesting look there. So, Sean, again, I want to throw it to you first. So looking at this, does this article tempt you? Because I've seen some <laughs> really stunning uh, landscape shots that were shot with infrared. They look kind of surreal and, and, you know, impossible. Have you thought about diving into a camera like this? 
Uh, yeah, it's definitely interesting. Um, unfortunately, my problem always is, is that I, I create already more content than I know what to do with. So every time there's, you know, a new video camera or a drone or a different, you know, infrared <laughs> camera, I think, wow, that sounds, first I think that sounds great. That sounds wonderful. And then I think, when would I have time to actually make those photos? But <laughs> it is intriguing. And for years, you know, people have been, uh, converting their old, uh, digital SLRs over, taking the filters off and whatnot to get them converted to shoot infrared. So the idea, you know, of a camera that's just dedicated to that, because yeah, when, when it comes to landscape photography, there are some spectacular things that you can do with infrared, uh, including because if you're, if you're measuring those different wavelengths that aren't visible light, a lot of those wavelengths are still there in the dark, you know? So even after the sun goes down, shooting infrared during the night, different times of day, creating different looks in your images. And then of course, with the power of Photoshop and the ability to do, um, you know, blending and layering and things like that, I've seen some really spectacular photography that's been infrared images layered with color images, you know, the same image, but when you start bl uh, doing yeah. blending with infrared with color, then it, it even opens up a whole bunch of other creative possibilities. So yeah, I think anything like that that can get people doing something that's different and new and exciting is great. Oh, but Sean, you know, a lot of photographers will argue that if you mess with the shot after you take it, that's not real photography because you're not supposed <laughs> yeah. to touch the pixels. It's supposed to be like slide film, right? So, I mean, you're right. talking to the wrong man about that. Photo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's not you're evil. not allowed. Photoshop is evil. You're not allowed to pixel punish. You know, it's not legal. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And it's funny. I, I have, I've been having that conversation for, for years now and I actually just had that conversation. I was backpacking in the Ansel Adams wilderness with a buddy of mine and we spent the better part of two days. He just kept grilling me on like, so wait a minute now, how is what you do photography? Yeah. And uh, he just assumed Whoa. that a photographer was National Geographic or New York Times or whatever, yeah, you know, a journalistic, yeah, photojournalism. And that's been his view of what photography is, uh, you know, his whole life. Uh, so that's still a question that's out there. But yeah, I'm not, that's not where I'm coming from photographically. And yeah. so I, I, I would, I would say that all of the hosts on the TWIP network aren't coming from that perspective. Yeah, <laughs> so right. we all we all think, uh, yeah, we're capturing raw material with our cameras and what we do with it after is up to us. Joseph, what about you? What do you think about this? First of all, the uh, well, let's talk about the, this camera. Do you think, is this a camera that you'd buy? It's $1,700. It's going to come out in October. Is this something that you would add to your lineup or uh, or no? Well, if I if I was a Fuji shooter, uh, quite possibly, you know, I remember back at your house years ago shooting with your modified Canon. Your, you had an old Canon. It was a 10D, right? That Wasn't was that a 10D, yeah. Yep. Modified for infrared. And we had a blast. And remember, we were shooting studio stuff. We had, yeah, yeah we had a couple of ladies in with the, the studio lights. We had we had some really cool stuff. That yeah. was a lot of fun. Yeah, let's not talk and about that. Totally different. <laughs> that was a good night. Totally different type of infrared photography than uh, than what you normally would see it as and uh, yeah i i really enjoy playing with that again so if yeah. i yeah if i was shooting fuji then i would definitely be intrigued i certainly would rent one yeah. uh, i don't know yeah. that it'd be worth owning at 1700 dollars. and you know it's i've thought about converting some of the cameras that i have that i don't use anymore converting them over to infrared i've never gotten around to it it's i guess it's reasonably affordable um i think a few hundred bucks mm -hmm. or so to swap out the sensor so yeah, it's not it. terrible uh, yeah, you know, it's one of the, I, I would like to do it again. It was a lot of fun. I should probably do it one of these days. I just haven't gotten around to it. Yeah. Like, you know, like Sean says, when you have the time for all this stuff. I know, you know, that's, that's part of our personal hell, right? <laughs> all this cool stuff coming out and the more successful you get, the less time you have to play with it. So you just watch it go march right on by. Yeah. But yeah, you hit on a good topic though. So Joseph, this is like, was it $1,700 for this camera when... You, you overlay that with the fact that these new bodies are coming out fast and furious, you know, all these new new cameras, you know, Panasonic included, like we talked about at the beginning, the GX8 is coming out. You get the GX8, why not send your G, GX7 in and have sure. it modified for infrared if you want right. to go that route? You know, a couple hundred dollars and you got the best of both worlds and you save money. So, you know, yeah, I don't know, absolutely. you're right. If you're in the Fuji camp already and you've got that lens lineup, then maybe it makes sense. And you, you're really into infrared and yeah. you're going to get your money out of it. Otherwise, you know, it's kind of like... It's going to sit on the on the shelf and taunt you with its depreciation every day you look at it. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a great argument for renting. You know, that's a yeah. great camera that you rent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, let's jump into some listener Q&A. This is a segment where we uh, take a question from a listener and uh, answer it. You guys get to answer it. This one is from Bruce. Bruce says, 
I want to start traveling more, uh, specifically for photography or rather to take photos of interesting places, but I don't know where to start literally. Any ideas on where I should go, how to plan the trip, how I should edit photos while I'm there, or should I wait till I return? Cameras, lenses, I'm suffering from analysis paralysis. Both of you guys travel <laughs> and shoot. This is a good question because this is, I hit this all the time too. Like I'm going, I went to Chicago last week and I'm like, okay, what camera do I take? Do I take everything? Do I just take the DxO1 and suffer through it, you know, or do I take three to the holy trinity of lenses, batteries? Do I edit while I'm there? Do I take my computer? Do I take just my iPad? What? Joseph, what do do you do? (laughs) Well, the first part of this question, asking where to go. I mean, that's obviously it's going to be a very personal thing, figuring out where to go, what, what intrigues you. Um, and what part of the world intrigues you? What do you want to see? Are you going to see museums? Are you going to see beautiful vistas? Are you going to see exotic people? And what type of thing really interests you? Mm-hmm. And if you really can't figure it out, then spin a globe, close your eyes, and stick your finger on it, and make it stop, and go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's there's just That's so cool. many amazing places out there to go to. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, if you know what you like, or at least you know what you think you want to like, then yeah, you could at least narrow it down a little bit. Like for me, I love shooting in, in Southeast Asia is just an incredible region. I love shooting there. I love traveling there. I love eating there. It's wonderful. Yeah, but I've seen you is, eat a scorpion or two there, there on you your Instagram there, feed. <laughs> there you go. But it's not for everybody. Yeah. Right. And, you know, there's a there's a saying in Bangkok that Bangkok is not for beginners. If you are traveling internationally for the first time, don't go to Bangkok. Just don't. That's, really? You know, so there's places like that where you probably want to ease your way into some of the more exotic countries. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it really is very personal. It's, you know, Europe might be your bag, uh, incredible vistas and old castles and things like that, beautiful scenery. Asia might be more your, what you're after. Um, if you want to go to Africa, you're going to go shoot animals. You're going to go to wild animals out in, the, out in the, uh, the deserts. And, you know, just wherever you're going, there's all kinds of crazy stuff you can see. Yeah, so, yeah. I like all the idea. The person. Spin, spin the globe and then, uh, you know, stop it. But... You know, do your research on that spot that you yeah. stop at. Don't go into any hot spots or anything like that. Sean, what about you? You're you're bouncing around. How do you kind of pick where you're going and then what you're going to take with you so that you're not that guy that's like, oh, I forgot my battery or whatever. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, again, I'm mostly focusing on on natural areas, wilderness areas, or at least areas that, uh, you know, are outside of cities. Although I love traveling to cities and I, I love doing f- photography, uh, in, in more urban travel destinations. But usually if I'm doing much research, I'm figuring out, uh, where can I go that there's going to be opportunities for great atmosphere and weather and interesting landscapes. Um, and, when it comes to those kinds of locations, I think it's it's a good idea to know yourself and know what kind of travel you like to do. Um, I love getting off the beaten path. I don't have a problem. In fact, I, I thrive on, and this is what I've been doing my whole life, loading up you know, a 50-pound pack and trekking into the wilderness and spending a week you know, camping out and photographing in, in complete wilderness. You know, no place you can drive a car to or even uh, you know, ride a bike to. Um, but there are plenty of amazing landscapes that you can drive to. Obviously, the national parks in, in the United States are a big one and all around the world. In fact, Europe, uh, because it's been developed for so much longer, has much more accessibility for people who aren't uh, to the level of, of doing complete wilderness uh, photography trips. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then in terms of what to bring, um, you know, that's always that's always it's another one of those things. I really try to ask myself, you know, what are my intentions for the trip? And uh, how am I going to be traveling? So when I'm on a road trip and I'm in my four-wheel drive truck with the camper on it, I load up all my gear. And I know it's in the truck. And if I do a hike where I don't want much gear, I'll take a camera and a lens and strap it to my waist and, and you know, run up the trail. Yeah. Or if I'm shooting right outside the truck on the side of the road, then I can pull out my 400-millimeter lens and you know, set up a bigger tripod and whatever. Uh, when I go to Europe, if I'm traveling in Europe or if I'm traveling with the family or if I'm going back country, uh, specifically, then I start thinking about taking, for example, like the NEX seven, or now I'm testing out like you guys, the, that DXO one yeah. with my iPhone. So the idea that, wow, I could just put my iPhone and the DXO one in my pocket and go and actually yeah. get publishable photos That's or crazy. Yeah. yeah, in Europe, the NEX seven, I can put that, that camera and three or four lenses in a little 
satchel that slings over my shoulder doesn't even look like a camera bag. So, yeah, yeah, I think about all those things uh, and kind of plan that in advance. I love it. I think that that's the key word there, both from both of you guys. Plan, right? Yeah. Plan yeah. what you're going to take. Don't just you know show up and you'll be like I said, you'll be that guy without the battery or or someplace that you're not supposed to be, Joseph, right? So, right. yeah, plan it out. It's interesting that you, you brought up D, the DxO as part of that, Sean, because I, as I play around with the DxO one and take it out with me, I start, and I'm curious to see if you guys have the same thing. When I take just that in my iPhone, even though I know it's a highly capable camera and I can get some great images with it, I, I almost have phantom limb disease, right? <laughs> Where I feel like, I don't have a camera with me and like, you know, it's like Superman without his cape. I'm like, I need to have my camera over my shoulder, but I have this thing in my pocket. So I know I can still shoot and get great images, but I don't have my camera with me. Do you guys feel that at all? Is it like, do you have to get used to not actually taking a quote traditional camera with you? Sean, what do you think? Uh, you, the time I, I've taken the DxO one on two trips so far, and I've always had an, a second camera mm, with me when I've mm -hmm. had it. So I, I haven't tried going completely, you know, just just commando with the DxO yet. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. I'm going to try that, actually. I'm, next time I go out, I'm going to take just that and see if I have that phantom uh, phantom camera experience. You're going to. I'm telling you, I've had it. Joseph, what I, about you? Have you had that? I, same boat as Sean. I've I've uh, always gone out with it as an extra, not on its own. Uh-huh. So, see? yeah, I haven't had that experience. I know you're going on a trip soon, Joseph. You should just take the G DxO and see if it does. Uh, <laughs> <knock on laughs> it'll cover you. I, I will say the one thing I do notice shooting with it is I'm not used to shooting with fixed uh, fixed focal length lenses. And mm. I know some people shoot fixed focal length all the time. I, I shoot zoom lenses. And so the idea that what I see, that's it. That's all I get. I can't, I can't zoom in closer. I can't go wider. I, I mean, I have to walk around to try to change my composition. So yeah, yeah. that is definitely a little hard for me. But I think if you shoot prime lenses anyway... Uh, especially whatever it is, 32 millimeter or 35 millimeter, mm -hmm. then it probably feels great. Yeah, it's 32, yeah. Yeah, zoom with your feet. Interesting. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, listeners, if you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, just visit us at thisweekinphoto.com. Click on that Submit a Question link to send us a question, or you can even leave us a voice message if you're not shy. All right, coming up after the break, we're going to share our picks of the week. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. Audiobooks are great to listen to when you're, say, walking around town on photo walks or post-processing photos or doing compositing or any other passive activity like that. And for the TWIP army, that means you, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. Now, an audiobook I'm currently listening to is called Virtual Freedom by Chris Ducker. It's a really good guide to hiring virtual assistants to run next-generation virtual businesses like This Week in Photo. It's a fascinating listen, and only halfway through the book, I've already had several head-slapping moments. Now, to download this audiobook for free, or another one of your choice, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip. That's audiblepodcast.com slash twip. And also, Audible has free apps that you can download and listen to on your iPhone, Android device, Windows phone, Kindle Fire, plus iPod, and over 500 MP3 players. And it's important that you sign up for the free trial from our show-specific URL on your PC or Mac. And after that, you can download one of their apps and sign in to use it. But use your PC or Mac first to get the free audiobook over at audiblepodcast.com slash twip. And many thanks to audible.com for supporting This Week in Photo. I've been listening to audiobooks for years, and for me, it's the closest way to mainline information and ideas ideas directly into your brain. All right, guys, let's jump into our Picks of the Week segment. Remember, your pick can be anything as long as it is related to photography. Joseph Lenashki, I'm going to let you yes, go sir. first. What is Photo Joseph's Pick of the Week? Well, I have been playing with Mylio, the new-ish new software for managing your photos. Uh, one of the big attractions of Mylio is that you can put it on your Mac, on your iPad, on your iPhone, or even on a PC. Not that I have one, but you could. And and uh, share your pictures Asterisk. across all the devices. <laughs> share your pictures off across all those devices. And you know, I've been using Photos, of course, from uh, the new Photos app from Apple, mm -hmm. and it has the whole iCloud photo 
sharing so you get all your pictures across all devices. So same basic idea. But from what I've seen so far, uh, Milio is, is faster and more reliable as far as getting your pictures across multiple devices. Yeah, the, the photo stream, you know, it's definitely got some growing up to do. Yeah, uh, I yeah. just reset photo stream on my iPhone again because it was popping up saying, oh, you haven't, you haven't, uh, your photos haven't synced to the cloud in three weeks. Connect to a Wi-Fi network. I'm like, I, you're telling me this while I'm on a Wi-Fi network. I know, I know. But my, and, you know, Milo is not without its its foibles, but it is a very interesting tool. One of the really cool things, it's not, I don't, you know, not terribly useful from a production standpoint, but it sure makes a cool demo, is you can literally have your iPhone in your hand and your your Mac or PC or whatever in, open in front of you, have the same picture open and make a change on your phone and see it within less than a couple seconds showing up on your on your screen. That's crazy. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it has some base organization limitations but the company is very open with what they're doing and their next features and uh, and the things like albums you can create albums as many albums as you want to organize your photos but you can't nest albums or put albums in folders yeah. so for a couple dozen is no big deal for a couple thousand it's a bit of a nightmare yeah. uh, but you know they insist that that is something that's coming sooner rather than later they know that's a major feature that they need uh, you know it handles raw plus jpeg pairs which as a Lumix shooter, that's something I'm shooting almost all the time. Unless I'm in the studio, I'm only shooting raw here. But if I'm out and about, I'm always shooting raw plus JPEG. So I love the the pre-processing idea. You know, that's something that a term that uh, I think Julio coined that one. You yeah, know, him. Julio Sorio. Yeah, and um, the idea of dialing in the look in your camera before you push the button. And, and frankly, if I can get the look that I want in camera, I don't want to screw around in post-processing. I don't want to mess with the raw file. Import them. Got my JPEG. I'm ready to go. Um, but if I need that raw file, it's there, and that's something I can easily get to. And that's something that even Lightroom doesn't handle properly. It just yeah. it blows me away. It's incredible frustration. So yeah, so I'm I'm really impressed with Milo. Yeah. Still playing with it. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna use it on this trip. On this next trip, I'm going. I'm gonna use it exclusively. And this is a personal trip, not a business, not a shoot. So it'll be, you know be pretty light use. Uh, and I don't know that it would be ready to replace something like Lightroom. But it's certainly if you're a photos, you know, iPhoto type user, then it is definitely worth checking out. Love it. Mylio. Yeah, that's a, it, I think they made a big splash last year. I think it was at Photo Plus Expo they, uh, when they launched. And uh, yeah, they've been iterating and polishing. And yeah, it's, uh, it, I think the, the question, though, is still that, and you know this, Joseph, I mean, there's a lot of photographers out there still like searching for the holy grail of synchronization, backup, sharing and all that and right now it doesn't seem like there's that one solution that does that it's it's going to be a little frankenstein-y for a while but but services like mylio certainly get us a, a long way there and closer they do yeah and on the apple the icloud photo library with apple photos i tried it i think you know i i tried it gave it the earnest try but i think i hit the wall of uh storage space you know, right, because they have a what is it a twenty gig limitation or something? Well, like it's that. as big as you can get a hundred gig. Um, that's the biggest you can have, and yeah. I have, and actually that was one of the problems I have setting up. So I have the hundred gig account, and I went to migrate my entire personal aperture library. I'd split my personal and my business libraries into two separate ones, and I took the personal one, tried to move out all the photos, and it's over a hundred gigs, and so I can't migrate because. Once I migrate, it can't upload, and so it just stops. It just right. you know this isn't going to fit. It's like yeah. oh, this is not what I really want <laughs> right. to be dealing yeah, with right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you know that holy grail idea. It's it really comes down to to the dam, right? The digital asset management tool that is the single most important part of it. All the editing features that can come later, and that can come from third parties, mm -hmm. and that's the potential that Photos has is to be a great dam because. You know, Aperture was a great dam, and in my opinion, and many others, it's still the best one that was out there. It definitely is better than what Lightroom's got. Um, you know, I'm really starting to enjoy Lightroom, starting to get to know it quite well, but its its dam is just nowhere near what Aperture had. Yeah. If Photos can develop that and then let the third parties do the plugins, great. Same thing with Milio. If Milio can make that really robust, really powerful digital asset management tool, and then have open an editor, so you can open in Photoshop, in DX Optics Pro, in whatever other tool you want. As long as I have a place to manage and organize my photos that is universal and syncs cleanly and automatically backs up, I'm sold. Love it. Love it. Cool. Yeah, we're, we're still in the early days. We were born too early. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joseph. Thanks a lot for that. MyLeo. I think it's at MyLeo.com, right? That's right. M-Y-L-I-O. All right. All right, Sean, what's your pick of the week? So uh, I'm going to share um, TK Actions, the TK Actions custom panel, uh, which is now uh, just recently released 
the version four, the newest version is version four. And a couple disclaimers. First of all, this is something that's, uh, it's, it's fairly geeky. Uh, it's, it's for Photoshop users only. Joseph knows he's laughing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's Photoshop. It's a, it's an extension, uh, an add on for Photoshop. Uh, and it's for pretty high level Photoshop type use. Number one, number two, like I said, full disclosure, uh, I produce the, uh, I partner with Tony Kuiper who, who, who creates, created the panel, programs the panel, and I produce the uh, educational material for it. But I also wanted to just mention it because um, with Creative Cloud 2015, he put out a new version of the panel, and every new iteration of the panel that Tony produces is amazing. So it's this extension panel that gives you access to building quickly and efficiently um, luminosity mass and luminosity uh, selections in Photoshop, which open up just unlimited possibilities for the types of image adjustments and image developing that you can do in Photoshop. And these are all things that Photoshop has always done anyway, but no one accessed them because they were so buried in the back end uh, or really difficult to get to and understand. And the TK panel puts this all in a custom panel like, you know, like any of your other Photoshop panels sits there on your desktop mm -hmm. and with single click buttons, you can access all of these luminosity masks, plus a whole bunch of other um, Photoshop image adjustments and Photoshop features that ph photographers use on a regular basis, but you're constantly going either to keyboard shortcuts or menus or hidden yeah. in panel menus, or you're searching all over the place to find all this stuff. And this puts it all in one really convenient place. So it's this, it's really cool uh, control center for Photoshop, for photographers that are using Photoshop at that level. And, and, and two uh, questions. First of all, where can folks go to get this? So you can find it on my website, which, uh, I don't know, is that in the show notes? or Yeah, yeah we'll put it in the show notes, but oh, yeah, let's say it too. Outdoorexposurephoto.com is, is okay. my website. So it's available there. Uh, and of course, Tony's website, uh, Tony Kuiper, is the main place. And that's goodlight.us nice. is, uh, like is Tony's website. That's a cool URL. And then the second question is, just in sort of six-year-old layman's terms, explain to us what a luminosity mask is. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's that. That's I spend uh, like three days, eight hours at a time uh, explaining that. So it's a little, <laughs> it's a little in there. But the basic <laughs> idea is that, yeah, I know. Um, in, in Photoshop, the channels panel gives you access to the luminosity channels. And luminosity channels are broken down red, green, blue for the, the three color channels. And it's basically what tonal or luminosity value each pixel in the image has for that color channel. Mm -hmm. And you can make selections based on those tones. And if you can make a selection based on a tone, you can make a mask based on that tone. And with those masks, you can now make any sort of adjustment, whether it's a, a curves adjustment, a levels adjustment, a hue saturation adjustment, a vibrance adjustment, sharpening clarity, all those types of things that we do to our images in Photoshop, you can now control them tonally. So target them to specific tones and they feather perfectly. So mm -hmm. one of the issues that people have when they're working in Photoshop is you see halos around things. You can right. see where the edge of your adjustment is because you either made a hard edge selection or you tried to paint it with a, a really kind of crude paintbrush and you see those edges of, of your adjustments. And with luminosity selections and mass, everything is perfectly feathered tonally throughout the image. So you don't, they're invisible. Your adjustments cool. are invisible. That's cool. All right. And so Sean, got, what's, what's new in version four? Cause I've got version three. Ah, yes. Um, so version four, uh, Tony keeps advancing it, basically trying to make it more user friendly, make all of this stuff so that anyone can access it. Early on, you had to make all the masks by hand. No one did that except for geeks like me. Uh, now, everything is single click. So you want a certain mask for a certain tonal range, you click the button, it happens. Uh, you can uh, view selections. He's got a viewing mode, so you can actually visualize what that luminosity selection looks like. Um, and then he has a ton of other actions um, built in um, that just make, like I said, everything that you would normally do in Photoshop easier all in one place. So you have this panel. Um, I'm trying to think differences from version three. There were still multi-step processes that you had to do, even with the version three panel. All of that now is single click. So nice. 
Yeah. You don't have to go through multi-steps. And the, the entire layout and graphic interface of the panel makes more sense, is easier, it's nicer to look at. So, yeah, oh, and we, one other thing, uh, all, the, all the masks and everything now are 16-bit. Previously, they were 8-bit. Never really an issue, but some people were worried about with 8-bit uh, selections of mass that they might notice some banding or issues in, in their adjustments. Everything's a full 16-bit workflow now. Nice. Love it. Cool. All right. Thanks for that, Sean. That's yeah. uh, TK Actions version 4. All right. Yep. We'll link to that in the show notes. And real quick, my pick is something you guys may not know about or you may know about it. Um, you guys are probably familiar with a company called iFi, right? They make the little SD... Wi-Fi enabled memory cards. Yeah. Well, now they've uh, they've recently introduced uh, what they're calling the iFi Cloud, I believe, which is operates independently of the card, so you don't necessarily need a card. And they're doing a number of things that are really compelling above and beyond what you could do with, say, a Google or like Google Photos or other online services in terms of sharing and automation around your photos. For example, you can shoot images with your phone and tag them and have certain things happen to those tagged images. Like when I tag it this way, it goes over here. They're integrated with um, if this, then that. So you could tag images that when you tag them a certain way, a recipe on if this, then that kicks off. And maybe that image goes to Instagram and to Facebook and to your Dropbox and gets shared with these five people. You know, little levels of sort of automation like that that they've built in. So they're taking that tag rather than just dump all your stuff in the cloud as you take it. So it's pretty interesting. Um, it deserves a, a quick look. So if you haven't checked out iFi.com lately, head over there and check them out. And that's my pick of the week. Nice. Sounds great. All right, guys, before we sign off, I want to just find out what you guys have coming up. Joseph, I know you're uh, you're always on the road, man. <laughs> Where are you heading to <laughs> next? That idea. Uh, well, next is uh, is Europe for family vacation. We're going out to see a wedding. Um, going out to one of Sean's favorite places, going to Slovenia. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. I don't know how much shooting I'm going to get done. We're taking the baby out and it'll be the first time most of the family's seen the baby. But one of the next big things got going on is actually up in January, and I'm going to be doing a photography workshop, photography slash cultural adventure workshop in Oaxaca, Mexico. Hmm. And this is with yeah. a... Uh, a fellow by the name of Eric Mindling. Eric, uh, Sean, do you know Eric? Oh, sure I know Eric been. well. Yeah, you know, great guy. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, so Eric spends half of his life down in Mexico and Oaxaca, and he's been doing cultural tours down there for decades. And just taking people into the into the backwoods there and showing you see how you know, textiles were made and have been made for hundreds of years and how certain foods are made and and art and just some incredible things that normal tourists absolutely do not get to see. Yeah. And this is the kind of thing that if you don't know somebody, you are not getting back there. And so now's your chance to know somebody and to go. And instead of just being a cultural tour this time, we've expanded it to make it a cultural slash photography workshop. Nice. So we're going to be out there shooting. We'll spend the, the mornings and the evenings and the best light will be out shooting. And then in the afternoons when it's too hot to be outside, we're going to go into the cool hotel and do some photo education. And we're going to, we're bouncing all over the place. We have an incredible itinerary put together. The, uh, you can get more information about the workshop at photojoseph.com slash workshops. It's all right there. We are not yet selling the seats. we got a few more little details to iron out, but what there is on there is a mailing list to sign up for. So if you're interested, you got to sign up for the mailing list because that's where we're going to announce it once tickets are for sale. And uh, they will most likely all sell out with that first blast because we're yeah. going to do it for a very affordable price and there's very limited seating. So if you're interested at all, sign up for the mailing list, photojoseph.com slash workshops. What's the, uh, uh, what's the seating going to look like? How, how many people? Are I, believe our, I believe our max is nine. And that's okay. limited oh, by how many seats are on the bus. Yeah, the, the vehicle that we're going to be using. Wow. So, yeah, okay. driver, Eric and I, and uh, and the passengers, the, oh, the guests. Oh, killer. Nice. Yeah. So basically you're saying there's eight seats because one's going to be mine. Right? Excellent. <laughs> that's what I like yeah, to hear. I want to I go too. I want to so, go. There you go. Who else, who else is coming? <laughs> Seven. And, and if anybody gets a chance to check out Eric's uh, photographs that he's been taking in the area of the, you know, the people who live there and the textiles that they wear and the pottery that they do and all that stuff. Mind blowing photography, really yeah. good stuff. Yeah. Love it. Cool. So, absolutely. Awesome. Sean, what do you got coming up? Well, busy, uh, yeah, busy fall and, uh, 
Yeah, busy fall and spring coming up. In September, I'm co-leading a workshop with uh, fellow Photo Cascadia member, um, David Cobb, who's a good friend of mine, and we do a lot of workshops together. We're in the uh, Sawtooth, uh, Sawtooth Mountains of Idaho. So we'll be there doing a workshop. And then from there, uh, I leave and go straight up to the Canadian Rockies with three other members of the Photo Cascadia team. And we're going to just be searching for adventure and fall photography options uh, up in, in the Canadian Rockies. That'll take us up to the end of September. Then in the uh, second half of October, I'm doing a week-long um, photo tour and workshop in the Eastern Sierra with Swiss photographer Christian Hebe who's a friend of mine and somebody I work with uh, fairly often. And so that's second half of October. That uh, All these workshops are full, by the way. We've been filling up quite nicely lately. So basically we, you're we, just teasing right now. Just saying. Just, you said, well, what, what am I doing? So this is what, this is what I got going on. But yeah, None of the stuff you could sign up for, but yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's awesome. And then in March, yeah, Christian and I, uh, same guy, uh, we're going to Patagonia and Easter Island. So oh, that wow. ought to be fun too, yeah. Man, your is life is just horrible. I know. It's just horrible. Both of you guys, it's ridiculous. I love it. Cool, guys. That's uh, that's great. And Sean, thank you for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Uh, hopefully, you'll have time throughout your Indiana Jones adventures to come back on the show again soon. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, Frederick, and any time. Just let me know. I'll be All right, nice. definitely. We'll reach out. And Joseph, thank you for coming on too. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Always, always. All right. And listeners, that brings us up to another, the end of another episode of This Week in Photo. Huge thanks to our sponsors for their support of this show. And uh, be, sure, be sure to check out Joseph and Sean's site and the workshops and their picks of the week and all that stuff. We'll link to everything in the show notes for this episode, which is number 426. And also be sure to check out all of our shows over at thisweekinphoto.com. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production produced by Suzanne Llewellyn with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.